My name is Keith Beavers, and I just found out that armadillo means the little armored one. I mean, that is so cute. And they can swim and hold their breath underwater for six minutes. What's going on, wine lovers from the Vine Pair Podcasting Network? This is the Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers, and I am the tasting director of Vine Pair. We're going all the way north, and then we're going all the way east, and then we're going up a little bit more to the northeastern corner of Spain, a little place called Priorat. You may have heard of it. You may love it. Let's get into it. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by the language of yes. Randall Graham is one of the most innovative, forward-thinking winemakers in the U.S. He's fallen in love with the Languedoc, a historical region in the south of France that borders Spain and takes a lot of inspiration from Spanish winemaking. This wine tastes of deep, dark fruit with a tinge of mocha and a whisper of citrus. The fruit-forward nature isn't overwhelming thanks to the high tone of Carignan and Grenache grapes. If you're looking for a wine with a historical foundation and forward-thinking flavor, this is it. To try the language of yes in Pasillage, visit thebailroom.com. Wine lovers, there is an autonomous Spanish region in the northeastern part of Spain called Catalonia. This place is wild. Like everything in wine, there have been humans in this part of Spain making wine since the Phoenicians. But that's not the important part of our story. The important part of the story is what happened in the 12th century. But before we talk about that, let's talk real quick about Catalonia. This is a very cool region geologically because it is just south of the Pyrenees. But the Pyrenees does not define this region. The Pyrenees is actually an absolutely stunning visual backdrop of this region. But this region does have its own mountain range. Okay, this is why this is, this is why I love this place. This is, so Catalonia, if you want to go back to our Cava episode, this is where Cava happened. But Cava happened towards the coast because what's really neat about this place is in the northeastern part of Spain, in, in Catalonia, it's a very Mediterranean climate on the coast, right? Of course. But as you go inland, it starts getting hillier and hillier and hillier. And as you get further into the hinterland of the Catalonia region, you hit the Monsant mountain range, which is a mountain range that literally parallels the coast and protects everything towards the coast from what's going on between the Pyrenees and this mountain range. And what I love about this is when you're coming in from the coast, you go inland and you're basically in the hills of the Penedes. This is where Cava is made. This is a very Mediterranean climate. But as you get further and further inland, things get crazier, more arid, more dry, more infertile, and higher elevations, and you're working your way up into the Monsant mountain range, and in this hilly, steep place, this arid region, 
in the 12th century, a sect of Carthusian or Carth- Carthusian, I think that's how you say it, monks from Provence made their way into this place and built a priory, built an abbey. Of course they did. And what did they do? <laughs> they started planting vines. <laughs> Why not? They started planting vines. And it just so happened that in this hilly, arid, mountainous place, there are all these spotty, spotted, <laughs> spotty, there are villages spotted throughout this area. Now, the monks in the 12th century, they do the wine thing. We know this, right? Monks do wine. And they do it well because they're in isolation most of the time. They have nothing else to think about. And, well, I mean, they have, you know what I'm talking about. And the villagers saw what was going on and they wanted to start doing it. So we have in the 12th century a cropping up of this sort of small wine activity in the hilly mountainous regions of Catalonia. Now, I'm not really sure if it was thriving or self-sustaining, but everything seems to have been going great until the 19th century. In this little area and in Spain, well, you know, in the phylloxera, guys, it gets to head S and then it works its way up, gets into the mountains, and phylloxera hits this little wonderful thing going on in the mountains around this priory. And the story, wine lovers, is the same. It devastates the region. And the thing is, the rebuilding, you know, we usually talk about the phylloxera thing and then they rebuild. It takes a long time to rebuild. But the thing about this place, we talked about it, right? It's, it's, it's a lot of hills. It's mountainous. They, they consider it very inaccessible. It doesn't have a lot of trade routes. So when phylloxera come and destroys this place, it doesn't come back for at least, well, more than 50 years. I mean, there was wine being made, but not on a large production scale, not on a commercial scale. And then after World War II in the 1950s, wine production on a large scale does come back to this little area. But unfortunately, it's in the form of co-ops. Now, co-ops are great these days, but back in the day before the EU was around, there wasn't a lot of upkeep, maintenance, or introductions of new technologies. It was a very stagnant business, the co-op. And the wines that were coming out of these co-ops were not being taken care of at the time. It was just very, just pump it out, pump it out. It's a little bit harsh. A lot of tannins, not a lot of developed fruit. It was just co-op wine. And then in the 1980s, a man by the name of René Barbier, who was born in Tarragonia, which is the coastal town in Catalonia. If you're in Tarragonia and you look west, you're looking at the Montsant mountain range and then the Pyrenees. He was a, a, a French winemaker, even though he was born in Spain. Well, he, he was Spanish, he was a Spanish French winemaker, but he was trained in places like Bordeaux. He was trained in Limoux. This guy comes into this place and it is just rife with co-ops. But he doesn't see that. What he sees is this beautiful mountainous, hilly kind of region with all these little peaks and valleys. And he sees this soil, and it's called licorera, which means licorice. It's oxidized granite and slate. It's extremely infertile. And he's like, wait one second here. There is potential here for great wine. It's arid, it's infertile, 
the elevations are right. He also noticed a very significant amount of very old vines. So he starts conceiving of this idea born in Burgundy called the Clo, C-L-O-S. We talked about it in the Burgundian episode. It means a walled vineyard. So he goes about his business beginning to revive the wine industry of this hilly area inland from the coast, inland from the Penedès in the Montsant mountain range. And this sparks a lot of interest. The wines he begins to make, well, the first one he made was called Clos Mogador. And it got a lot of attention because the wines in this area were thick and big and robust, but balanced and powerful. People are like, wait a second, this is really, really cool. Other people in the area are like, wait a second, this is a great idea and I think I want to do this too. So all these independent winemakers in a world rife with co-ops before the EU was around started breaking through and making their own wines and defying the co-ops. In the Spanish Appalachian system, the highest tier, the most elite, is the DOCA. It is, you know, like anything in, in the, the, the EU-compliant um, tiers, you have the highest Appalachian designation is going to have more restrictions, high, the highest quality of grapes, the price is a little bit higher, the yields are a little bit lower, and for a long time... Rioja was the only DOCA in Spain, and it was awarded in the 1990s. And this is what's so wild about this little hilly area we're talking about here, is because of the work of Rene Barbier and all of his, you know, followers, the people that came and said, you know what, I'm going to do this too, because of the age of these vines and because of the the um, the it's not easy to <laughs> to make wine here because the terraced vineyards are so steep. This became the second DOCA in Spain. It's just really wild how Rioja, the storied region of Rioja, has a DOCA. And this kind of Johnny newcomer here also gets a DOCA because of the work of the 1980s. And they end up naming this region, this DOCA, Priorat, which is named after that priory that was first installed in the 12th century. And by the way, the name of that abbey, that priory was called Scala Dei, which means stairway to heaven or stairs to heaven because this priory was so high up in the air. If you look at it, the stairs are going up and you, you know, you're going up to heaven because you're really high in a mountain. And because the United States loves big full-bodied wines. I mean, we're kind of changing now or more into like the more acid forward stuff, but like we were into big full-bodied wines for quite some time. That's why the Super Tuscans did very well here. Well, Priorat, small production stuff, quite expensive, makes it onto the American market and we embrace the hell out of it. And like the early 2000s, the early aughts is when it really started ramping up on our market. So, what is going on here? What kind of wine is made here? 41% of the land under vine in Priorat is Garnacha. 23% of land under vine is Garignan. 
that gives you an idea of what's going on here. But because of the arid nature of this place, the wines are intense, dry, big, high in alcohol, good amount of tannin, and the fruit is like, wine lovers, it's thick. <laughs> it's a thick, textured, beautiful wine. As we know from Provence and from the Rhone, Garnacha thrives in heat. It loves heat. And this place is arid and hot. And that soil is, well, the thing about this soil is they're just like the, like the stones of Chateauneuf de Pop. They do believe that these, this licorera, this licorice uh, oxidized granite and slate does um, ab uh, absorb heat and then reflects it back up into the vines. And a lot of these vineyards are terraced. They're literally carved, terraced, carved into the actual, you know, the, the perimeters of these hills. Not all of them are terraced. There are some like little valleys, but a lot of these vines are terraced. And Garnacha and Carignan here really work well together. They do have some acidity to them. So you get these big full-bodied wines, but the acidity is just right. And if it's done in such a wonderful way, which they often are, you get this big, powerful wine, but it lifts on the palate. It's they're they're super great, and they're often blended, and but sometimes they're single varieties. Also, there's a, about ten percent of Cabernet Sauvignon in the area. That makes sense. There's a little bit of Syrah and a little bit of Merlot in the area. So that's how this place rolls. They they do blends. They do single vineyards. They do single varieties. There's also some white wine made here, but we're not going to see a lot of that on the American market. Maybe in the urban areas like New York, San Francisco, and stuff like that, but they work with Garnacha Blanca, which is awesome, and then Macabeo and Pedro Jimenez, but Macabeo and Garnacha are, I mean, well, Garnacha Blanca is, there's not a lot of it out there, but there's literally like 1% of Macabeo in there, and there's less than a half of percent of Pedro Jimenez when they make fortified wines from had to let you know that just in case it, you know, cause you're, it's pre rice it's popular here. So they might have some stuff out there. I don't know. And as far as how they classify these wines, there's, there were some, in the past, there were ways to classify them that no one really paid attention to. But in 2019, I, they did something really cool. I don't think I've seen this anywhere else. I love this. They actually named, they created their own five tier classification system. And they gave it the coolest name, Los Nombres de la Tierra, the names of the land. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like, I don't know, some fantasy novel or something? It's just so cool. And the five tiers are interesting. L well, let me just get into it and I'll, I'll tell you as we go. So the first tier is D-O-Q Priorot Wine, which is basically the generic label. It just means that the wine is made within the basic requirements of the region for location, the age of the vine, and the variety. Then the second tier, this is really the interesting one. This is the one that you're going to have fun with out there on the American market. Vines Davila, which is wines from one of 12 specified villages. And they're all over. There's 12 of them and you're, you, they're on the market and it's kind of fun to go around from wine shop to wine shop. Or if you're, if you're visiting a city, if you're visiting somewhere, going to the wine shop, see what kind of, you know, um, uh, Vin de Villa from Priorat, a wine shop will have. 
because I don't know. The way I look at it is like these 12 villages were the villages surrounding the Abbey who really got excited back in the 12th century that the monks were doing their thing. You know, pretty cool. And I'm not going to list all the 12 villages because number one, I'd probably butcher all of them and there's 12 of them, but you can look them up online and I know it's fun to go out and search for them. Then we get into the pricey stuff. You have Paraje wines, very similar to how Argentina is trying to classify their wines, meaning it's very terroir driven. So we're having a wine that is expressing a specific terroir. Then you have the fourth tier, which is Viña Clasificada, which is kind of their single vineyard designation where 80% of the vines of the single vineyard are at least 20 years old. And then you have the fifth and final tier, Gran Viña Clasificada, where the wines must be 80%, the vineyard... 80% of the vineyard must be at least 35 years old. So it's kind of cool where this classification system is more about the age of the vines. And that's really what Priorat is about. The, well, the age of the vines is a big deal. I mean, not all the vines are really old, but there are a lot of really old vines there. So it's kind of this, it, that's part of their history. Like it's almost like they give five tiers and within those five tiers, they're representing everything that they've been doing since the 1980s and actually since the 12th century, which is just awesome. These wines are expensive, but these wines are spectacular. So if you've heard of Priorat, there's a good chance if you're in, I don't know where you are in your wine journey as always, but like there's a good chance if you're in wine, you've heard of Priorat. It may have been a little bit of confusing. So I really hope this episode got you right where you needed to go and as always if you're drinking the pre-rot you want to tag me on instagram that's fine pair keith i want to see that let's talk next week got some listener questions to answer all right Vine Pair Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. Ian J. Gallo Winery is excited to sponsor this episode of Vine Pair's Wine 101. Gallo always welcomes new friends to wine with an amazing wide spectrum of favorites ranging from everyday to luxury and sparkling wine. Gallo also makes award-winning spirits, but this is a wine podcast. Whether you are new to wine or an aficionado, Gallo welcomes you to wine. Visit thebarrelroom.com today to find your next favorite, where shipping is available.